Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look at verses 26 through 39. If you'd like to look there, we put it up on the screen for you. And I'm going to read it for us, verses 26 through verse 39. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, who's treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the earlier days after you'd received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. I thought about titling this sermon, Friends Don't Let Friends Fall Away. Since these verses concern apostasy, you actually divide verses 26 through 39 into two parts. Verses 26 through 31 emphasize the danger that we face of falling away from Christ. Well, verses 39, 32 through 39 tell us what to do about that danger. But apostasy is a difficult subject to address, and that for a lot of reasons. For one thing, when people approach a text like this, they often come with a theological axe to grind. They want to prove a point about the perseverance of the saints, for example, whether or not a person can lose salvation. And they want to grind their axe on this text. But here's the thing. The theological axe they're carrying wasn't even forged until the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, long after this letter was written. Our author was not explicating a theological controversy. He was warning his Christian friends of a clear and present danger. When we come to the Bible with an axe to grind, we end up reading the text with blinders on, which means we'll overlook parts of the text or even dismiss them. When it's a warning passage like this one, people can end up implying inadvertently, of course, but still end up implying that the text is not really as important as it seems. How different it was for the first readers of this letter. They read this passage to see what they should do, not how they might argue. And I propose that we do the same this morning. 
Let me point out for the sake of clarity something else I think makes this a difficult text to preach. In our day, it's popular to assume that a person can fall away from the church while remaining close to Christ. Now, I don't want to debate that issue, but I do want to point out that that idea would never have occurred to the first readers of this letter or to its writer. The idea was unknown in the early church and for centuries following. Had the first readers of Hebrews seen the April 2nd cover of Newsweek, which I put up on the screen for you, forget the church, follow Jesus, they would not have been able to make heads or tails of that. It would have made absolutely no sense to them. They operated from a different frame of reference. They thought of Christians as members of Christ himself. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. And as members of one another. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 5. They thought of Christ as the head and the church as his body. That's Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 and elsewhere. To separate the head from the body is death. Had they known about chemistry, they might have said it's no more possible to separate from Christians and still have Christ than it would be to separate hydrogen from oxygen and still have water. To put it plainly, a first century reader would have taken it for granted that a person who falls away from the church falls away from Christ. Now, that is hard for us to hear. Since we have all either known someone dear to us who has left the church or we at some time in the past have done so ourselves. Now, I don't pretend to understand it or say that there's not any subtle distinction between leaving Christ and leaving the organized church. In fact, I think there is. I would simply say our author doesn't think along those lines. To give up meeting together was paramount to giving up Christ himself. And it's treated with the utmost seriousness. This is one of the gravest warnings in the Bible. That's why in verses 24 and 25, he urged his readers not to give up meeting together, but to encourage one another more and more. Verse 24, don't forsake meeting together. Verse 25, encourage one another even more. Verse 26, for, the NIV leaves the Greek conjunction gar untranslated, but it connects us back to what's just been said in verses 24 and 25. For, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Now, there's a lot that needs to be said about this. First, back in verse 18 of this chapter, we read that for the believer in Jesus, no further sacrifice is needed. The Jewish Christ follower did not need to present a sacrificial lamb at Passover in order to be accepted by God. He didn't need to take part in the Day of Atonement sacrifice. He didn't need to bring any of the other sacrifices people offered in his day, nor do we in ours. Jesus himself was the ultimate sacrifice. For the believer in Jesus, no further sacrifice is needed, not one. That was verse 18. Verse 26 presents the opposite side of the coin. For the person who has turned away from Jesus, no further sacrifice is available. Not even one. In the end, it's always one state or the other. No further sacrifice is needed or no further sacrifice is available. And it all depends upon where you stand in relation to Christ Jesus. 
Now, there's some other things in this 26th verse we need to understand. And first is that word the NIV translates deliberately. It is the very first word in the sentence in the Greek, which gives it great emphasis. Other versions translate this word as willfully or purposefully. See, our author is not thinking about the alcoholic who can't fight the urge any longer or about the porn addict who gives in yet one more time. He's not even talking about the inveterate gossip who inches his way back into sin once again. He's thinking of the person who refuses to leave his sin and leaves Jesus instead. Understand, there is a conflict between the two. And if you won't leave your sin, eventually you'll leave your Savior. He has in mind here the same people he had in mind back in chapter 6. The people who have once been lightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and then have fallen away. He's talking about apostasy. The only other time our author uses the word that's translated sin here is in chapter 3, verse 17, where he's also talking about turning away from God and hardening one's heart. Now, grace and mercy, thank God, will continue to be offered to believers who sin, and our author encourages us to approach God for them. But for the person who, knowing the truth, rejects Christ Jesus, there's no forgiveness left. Our author is talking about what's commonly referred to as the unpardonable sin. A misreading of this verse led to a bizarre custom in the centuries following the apostles and the early church fathers. This verse caused people to be so afraid that they might sin after they were baptized, that is, after they received the knowledge of the truth, and so exclude them forever from forgiveness that many people, the Emperor Constantine was one of them, waited until moments before their deaths to be baptized so that they couldn't possibly sin again before they died. But our author is talking about something different about people who couldn't possibly believe again before they died. Now, if you ask, and you're probably wondering, do you mean a person who has sinned in the sense our author has in mind can never be restored? I would have to say, you're still not on the same page with our author. You're not quite getting him. He is not looking back at a person who has possibly committed such a sin, but looking forward at a person who might and warning, don't, don't do it. We can't know if any particular person has sinned in this way. But we can know that if he or she does, or if I do, There's no forgiveness left. That makes us very serious, doesn't it? There's no forgiveness because there's no sacrifice for sins left. If I reject what I once held, if I show contempt for Christ himself, treat the blood he shed for me as something worthless, and insult, the the word in verse 29 comes from the same root as our word hubris, has the idea of insolent self-assertion that despises other. If I insult the spirit who gives grace and continue to do so, that's the tense of the verb, how can God forgive me? Now understand, it's not that he wouldn't give forgiveness. 
but that I can't receive it. If I won't eat the only food that grows, then I shall starve. If I reject the only forgiveness that's available, then I shall remain unforgiven. This, our author sees, is the danger that we face, that his readers face. What begins is drift. He's warned us several times in this letter about drifting away from the Lord. What begins is drift can turn into desertion. And that's why we're to keep meeting together, why we should spur one another on and encourage one another. If our friends begin to drift, we should encourage them, call them back, urge them on. Our author operates under the assumption that Christ's people need to do this for each other. We need each other. Verse 31 says it's a dreadful, literally it's a fearful or a frightening thing. The Greek word is phabros, only used a couple times, and I think always in Hebrews. It's a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is an unusual thing to say. Because in Scripture, the hands of God are almost always perceived in a positive way. In fact, this is the only place I can think that they're not. To fall into God's hands was a good thing for King David even after he sinned. But it's one thing to be saved by God's hands when we're falling. And it's another to be seized by them when we're falling away. Or jumping, as the case may be. A while back, an Austrian extreme sports fanatic named Felix Baumgutter visited that statue you see up there of Christ the Redeemer on a mountain outside of Rio de Janeiro. That statue represents Christ welcoming the weary and the sinner. But Baumgartner had smuggled a parachute onto the little train that takes tourists up the side of the mountain to the statue. And once he got out of sight of other people, he began scaling that gray stone figure of Jesus, climbed out on one of its fingers, and then he jumped. And his parachute opened, and he walked away, and scratched off one more accomplishment from his list. He'd done that one. I think some people are like that. They try Christianity for a while. They may even climb to positions in church ministry. But once they've done the religious thing, they bail. Now, they're going to land in the hands of God. There's nowhere else to land. But they'll land as fugitives in sin rather than refugees from it. Now look at your text. Verse 32 marks a change. You can see that for one thing, by the tone, but for another, by the author's use of the imperative mood, the do this verbs. This is the first time he's used an imperative mood verb since chapter 7. If the previous paragraph informs us about the danger we face, this paragraph tells us what we can do about it. And the first thing we can do is to remember or perhaps a better translation would be to remind ourselves of past struggles and God's sustaining grace. We're to remind ourselves of the challenges we face to our faith in the past. For the first readers of this letter, those challenges were very vivid. They had stood their ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Literally, they endured a great contest with suffering. Contest translates the Greek word athlesis, from which we get our word athletics. They were 
publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, they stood side by side with those who were so treated. They watched their friends go off to prison. Their belongings were taken from them, but they didn't give up. They stood their ground, and they did so with joy. Our author urges them to remember, to remind themselves of what they did. Following Christ was worth it then. It's worth it now. You stayed true to him in that struggle, and you can stay true to him in this struggle. Our contest is probably quite different from these Hebrew Christians. Although in some parts of the world, China, Burma, Iran, Uzbekistan, Nigeria, Somalia, just to name a few, people share these very same experiences with Hebrew Christians of that day. But our struggle is different. Yet our author, I think, would have us remember too. Remember when your child died. And your faith was painfully tested how God stood with you and you stood true. Remember when your spouse left you, but you kept coming to church and you kept trusting God. Remember when you lost your job, were diagnosed with cancer, were in the accident, were harassed by classmates, ostracized by coworkers. Remember how you stood your ground and trusted in God. If you could do it then, you can do it now. So remember, remind yourself. He wants them to remember what they once did. He also wants them to know what they once knew. Verse 34, you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. What you knew then, know now. What was true then is true now. The people who fall away are almost always those who believe that this is all there is. That things will always be the way they are right now. People stay true when they know they have something better in store. Now in verse 35, we have the second imperative verb in this section. So do not throw away, that's it, your confidence or your courage. When people don't remember, when they think that the situation at hand is just going to last forever, when they forget what they know, they're in grave danger of throwing away their confidence. Sometimes, I'm sure some of you are like this too, but sometimes I will keep some odd piece of hardware for years. I am going to use that. I know I'm going to use it, so I'll keep it for years and years. And then one day I look at it and say, why am I keeping this thing? I throw it away. Why do I do that? Because it's been so long since I had need of it, I've forgotten why I kept it. I think people do the same thing when it comes to Christ. They drift away and they get used to life without him. They start missing church. They stop reading the Bible. Life goes on. After a while, they forget why they needed Christ in the first place. And that's when they throw away their confidence. No one takes it from them. They throw it away. And one day, they'll forget that they ever had it. They'll only think, yeah, I did that Christian thing for a while. It just didn't work for me. But there's a reward for those who keep their confidence. And the Bible writers were never shy about saying so. God loves to hand out rewards. He loves it. Every year, Karen and I walk in the Life Walk fundraising event for Beginnings Care for Life. And every year when the walk is over, the organizers 
hand out prizes. They reward the top three people who raise the most money. And then they reward the youth group that brought in the most. And then there are drawings. And every year, the people at beginnings give out some kind of prize to every single person who walks. There are movie tickets and free Sundays and coffee shop coupons and free pizzas and steakhouse coupons and fast food coupons and on and on and on. The people at beginnings just love to give out prizes. They find reasons to give people rewards. That's the way God is. Just looking to give out a reward. He wants to reward us. He's rooting for us. In the next chapter, our author will say that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He loves to get rewards, give rewards. Well, what do we have to do to get one? We have to finish. You don't have to finish first. You don't have to finish in the top 10. All you have to do is finish, or as verse 36 puts it, you need to persevere. The Greek is very clear. You have need of perseverance so that having done God's will, you'll receive the promise. Perseverance is God's will. And it's necessary to do God's will. See, the call of Jesus is not just to encounter him or have a spiritual experience with him. The call of Jesus is not just to be born again. The call of Jesus is to follow him up and down, in and out, all the days of your life. If you're not in it for good, you'll be out of it when things get bad. Are you in for good? In his book, The Social Animal, the columnist from the New York Times, David Brooks, wrote about how people become really good at something. He referred to research done by Gary McPherson of the University of Illinois. McPherson and Jane Davidson conducted a study with 157 children in Australia selected at random. Their hope was to discover keys to success in musicianship. What they learned, I think, has implications for everybody. Brooks says that they found out that IQ was not a good predictor of success. Neither was oral sensitivity, math skills, income, or even a sense of rhythm. The best single predictor of which child would succeed, would become a good musician. The best single predictor was a question McPherson asked the students before they even selected their instruments. So imagine your sixth grade child who's going to take band, doesn't even know if he's going to play the tuba or the trombone or the flute or the clarinet. He hasn't picked it out yet. And yet one question could identify whether he would be a good musician or not. And that was, how long do you think you'll play? The kids who plan to play for a short time because their parents made them, for example, turned out to be lousy musicians. Those who plan to play for a few years say, I'm going to play through middle school. When I get into high school, I'm going to quit. Yeah, they experienced modest success. But the kids who intended to play for the rest of their lives who answered that question, I'm going to play forever, who said, in effect, I want to be a musician. They soared. So it is in other areas of life, including faith. Those who say, God, get me out of this, usually don't last. Those who say, yeah, well, I want to be a Christian, 
But I don't think anybody ought to go overboard on this kind of stuff. Languish. But people who say, Jesus, by your grace, I will follow you wherever you lead for the rest of my life at any cost. So help me, God. Persevere. God, like any parent, is displeased when his children give up. We see that in the Old Testament quote from Habakkuk that comes in verse 38. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I'll not be pleased with him. Notice the contrast between living by faith and shrinking back. You live by faith or you shrink back. Find the same contrast in the next verse between those who shrink back and those who believe. Perseverance is not primarily perseverance in work or effort or sacrifice, but perseverance in trusting God. And that's our author's introduction to the next chapter. The most famous exposition of faith in the Bible. We'll explore that next week. At least we'll start. But for now, I want to draw out some, some final truths for us to apply to our lives. First, be sure that God is going to make things right. Verse 30 is an Old Testament quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. The word avenge here translates a Greek word meaning bring it out right. It's my job, God says. It's not your job, it's my job to bring it out right. Will you trust God to do that? To bring it out right? To bring out right all the bad things that have happened, all the losses you've endured, all the misunderstandings you've suffered. If you will trust God to bring it out right, you will persevere. Now, whether you trust him to do so or not, he will. He will bring it out right. But I implore you to trust him. Then let me reiterate the solemn warning in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. If you'll cling to Christ, there's no other sacrifice needed. If you abandon him, there's no other sacrifice left. I'll let God's Spirit speak to you on that subject and say no more about it. Finally, friends don't let friends fall away. That's the whole point of verses 24 and 25. We spur one another on. We don't give up meeting together. Not when the weather's bad. Not when we have a busy weekend. Not when we've had a conflict with fellow church members. Not even when, as was the case with these first readers of this letter, meeting together means constant persecution. We meet together and we encourage, or the word could be translated, admonish each other. Don't give up, we say. Hang in there. Trust God. We're with you. We're for you. You can do it. God will help. He will make all things right. We need to hear those words. And we need to give those words. You may need to give them to someone you know, someone you've seen drifting, who isn't remembering what he's done or knowing what he knew. It's a duty and a scary duty for us to love 
people like that. It's not just the pastor's job, not just the deacon's job, it's our job. If God speaks to you about calling a friend and saying, don't give up, then take your courage in hand and your tact and make that call. If you're one of those people on the verge of giving up, then let me say these words to you. Don't do it. Hang in there. Trust God. We're with you. We're for you. You can do it. God will help. He'll make everything right. Let's pray.